0: I'm your host,
1: Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Every summer, we see headlines in the news of wildfires burning out west. Whether set ablaze accidentally by irresponsible individuals, the malice hands of an arsonist, or simply by the raw power of Mother Nature, wildfires wildfires can wreak havoc when left unchecked. Since 2001, an average of 1.6 million acres burns due to wildfires every July in the U.S. Although we tend to focus solely on the negative outcomes from setting our forests ablaze, there is a silver lining. Pyrophytic... I probably mispronounced that. Plants among other things, rely on fire and heat created by it in order to survive. The fresh growth of a new forest after a blaze can generally be found teeming with new plant life and animal life. Tonight, we are joined by Dwight Snow, the U.S. Forest Service Assistant Fire Management Officer, to talk specifically about Florida's control burning plan and how it's designed to facilitate growth and longevity in our forest, not death and destruction. So, Dwight, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background with the...
2: in in the wildfire industry per se or whatever you do yeah well so i I started my career back in 1989 with the state of florida Uh, back then they were called florida division of forestry and i did 10 years with the state and uh was lucky enough to get hired on with the federal government in 1999 off the hills of 98 wildfire season Uh, we had a bad uh, season that year and then the federal government was looking for some uh, qualified tractor plow operators for better words and that's what i was (laughs) So they come knocking on my door, offer me a job, and I accepted the job. Work for them now, coming up on 23 years. I retire in December, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, it's been a good career with them. Yeah,
1: good. That, it's just, can you can you taste retirement yet? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the people tell you all the time, you got that look on your face. You know, when you see a federal employee that's smiling, you know, they all have this look <laughs> on their face. That they're knocking on retirement's doors. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, most people don't even know me. They, they can point me out and say, hey, you're about to retire. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, you've spent a lot of time around, not necessarily per se, Cal itself, but just around the state of Florida.
2: Uh, the state of Florida and the nation. Yeah, yeah. We get to travel all over the nation. That's one of the beautiful things about working for the Forest Service is, uh, we travel all over, been just about to every state that has fires in it, uh, all over from the east to the west California, Washington, Oregon all out west states yeah
4: that's awesome are you actively fighting the fires with the other um people in the force early early in my
2: career yeah i was out you know digging line trenching line and stuff like that fighting fires now i've worked my way up to a position where i'm in a management position in firefighting activities so uh you know as you get older you tend to do that they kind of push you out to the side push you out to the cattle and put you in management positions and that's okay you know i've enjoyed that uh, I'm a Type 1 Ops Chief on the uh, Southern Area Blue team, and I've been an Ops Chief now probably for the about Type 1 Ops Chief for, oh, I don't know, six, seven years. So uh, that's a pretty good deal. I like it.
4: I'm sorry. I should have been more clear on my question. I was asking when the folks with the U.S. Forest Service in Florida are traveling to other states, are you? is it because they need manpower over there in general to fire, either fight or manage fires, or is it learning, or what, what causes the travel?
2: A combination of both. Yeah. We travel quite a bit for training and learning. Uh, we send people out as trainees on wildfires and, uh, they'll work under a qualified person to get trained in a certain position. But yeah, we send a lot of folks out West on engine details to staff engines, uh, to staff, hand crews, helicopters, you know, all different types of, uh, positions that
3: they'll staff. So what exactly does your position entail?
2: Uh, here on the forest as assistant fire management officer, I'm responsible for uh, the wildfire protection of my district. Uh, that means you know, coming up with staffing for the day, what, what's appropriate based on the fire behavior that we're gonna have that day, and uh, figuring out what we're gonna be burning that year. We burned close to 35 to 40,000 acres here on the Ocala in a good year, and so it's mine and my counterparts responsibility. To come up with what we're going to be burning, so we do that. We write all of our prescriptions and get everything ready to burn. So, what
1: is you said the, the Florida South? What does that in, encompass? Your area of operation?
2: I'm responsible for on the Ocala National Forest south of four, Highway 40. We have two assistant fire management officers uh, on the Ocala, myself and John Ramsey. John Ramsey's responsible for everything north of 40. I'm responsible for everything south of 40. He's my counterpart up there. He does the exact same thing up there that I do south of 40.
3: So what, you know, when when you guys aren't going out doing prescribed burns or whatever, what are you guys doing as the USDA Forest Service, you know, at the fire division? What are you guys doing for work when you're not doing prescribed burns?
2: Uh, we're all-encompassing. We're working for other departments. Just, for instance, uh, the uh, boat ramp up at uh, Alexander Springs Bridge, there. We just got through welding all that fencing up around that boat ramp. We're involved in that. We're involved in a lot of uh, wildlife work, you know, doing RCW woodpecker inserts and stuff like that. We do a lot of that. And there's a lot of planning that goes involved in our day to day jobs for doing wildfires and prescribed burning. Writing burn plans is pretty complex, and we're involved in all that.
3: So I'll just kind of jump in and help everybody out
2: yeah i mean obviously there's not a fire every day of the year we're not burning every day of the year and we probably have the biggest workforce so when there's you know work to be done you know we're usually called on to go out and help do the the work
1: well let's dive into the fire yeah aspect
2: of what you got and
1: let's start off what is the biggest cause uh, of fire in our forest in florida
2: you know sadly to say uh arson and debris burning Uh, You know, we have a fair amount of knuckleheads out there that are just intentionally setting fires, and uh, they do it for different reasons. Some of them are doing it because they know that clearing the vegetation improves for hunting. And uh, some of them are doing it just to be malice, just to go out there and do it. Uh, And then you have the folks that are leaving their debris piles unattended. Uh, The winds come, pick their debris up, blows it out into the woods, and it starts wildfires. I really...
1: What kind of role does does lightning
2: play in in the fires? Same thing. Yeah, because
1: (laughs) I I really thought Florida being the the lightning capital of the world that your answer would be lightning.
2: Yeah, and, you know, lightning does play a major role, but statistically, you know, it's arson and debris burning because that's year-round. Our Mm -hmm. lightning fires are usually seasonal in the spring. Uh, That's when we come into our lightning season. And during that period of time, you know, the majority of the fires that we are going are lightning fires. It's... Not uncommon for us to have two or three fires in a day, you know, from lightning. So, uh, yeah, lightning is a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it makes a lot more sense that lightning really is only bad during certain times of the year. We get into the winter, and I mean, we still get storms. We get the quote-unquote what they call cold fronts that come down through Florida, but there's yeah. usually not a lot of lightning involved in those.
2: Yeah, and, you know, th- to say that you don't get a lightning fire uh, during the rest of the year is not true. You can get them, but it's just not as common as it right. is in the spring.
1: So what is the most common time of year for Florida to see forest fires?
2: Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, we do fires here in Florida year-round. Uh, we just had a fire not but about three weeks ago, uh, and it was a lightning strike. So here we are coming into fall, and we're getting lightning fires.
3: I feel like we've had some more storms than usual. I mean, I know it's still technically hurricane season, but lately, per se, like cold fronts whatever, I feel like we've had more than normal lately.
2: You know, this year uh, specifically and in, in last year, too, has been a feast or famine for us. Uh, we've been either way too dry. To do any kind of prescribed burning, or way too wet, uh, to do any pro- kind of prescribed burning. So yeah, coming off the of summer, we were real wet this summer. You know, prior to that, we were extremely dry and was having a lot of wildfires.
4: Well, that's got to be frustrating because, <clears throat> excuse me, don't, if, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a window having to do with certain winds and also when schools are in and things like that that you can even do the prescribed fire, right? So if the weather's not right during that window, you're what do you push off till next year?
2: Yes, yes, we do. Uh, however, we do have a lot of a lot of acres that we try to burn, so our window is pretty well open. Uh, just depending on the weather for that day, so if I have an east wind and I'm, you know, it's predicted to be east, then I can go find a burn unit that favors a east wind. So, you know, keeping our options open gives us an opportunity to burn a lot of different places. So,
3: so that's I'm all sure. part of writing your burn plan, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, that it's all in our prescription. I, I wish I'd have brought a burn plan. I could have passed it around, let y'all look at it. It's pretty complex. It's you know I think sixty
3: pages. Wow. Good. Yeah.
2: Well, there's
4: what six hundred thousand acres in the forest. Four
2: hundred plus four hundred. Yeah. yeah, it's
4: a little under four hundred. I know. So.
3: I did. I did a lot of land clearing for a while, and every morning we would have to call the forest service and let them know like where we're gonna burn, and we had it had to be so many like three hundred feet from houses and.
2: I it's have to great. do the same thing. I got played by the same rules, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I get no exemption on that. You know, I put in for my burn permit, you know, the day before I go out and burn. So, yeah, there's no exemption on uh, getting a burn permit. Uh, setbacks for that, you know, if anybody's curious to know, you can just look up Florida Forest Service prescribed burning setbacks.
1: So so you mean to tell me you guys just don't get to go out there with a match and light it on fire? There's a whole <laughs> lot more science that goes into that <laughs> than people believe. Just a little bit, just a little bit, Yeah. <laughs>
2: You know, the planning process starts, you know, the year I'm planning for 2022 right now. So, uh, we're out prepping, writing burn plans right now for 2022. I think a lot of misconception that that uh, surrounds a lot of controlled burns is that
1: I feel like there's has to be a group of people out there that thinks that this is just a willy-nilly
2: thing. We're just going to light the woods on fire over here today. Or... You know, I've heard that before. Uh, just, you know, to make it clear, we are some of the most highly trained firefighters there is. You know, I, I could, my career of training started in 1989, and it didn't stop. I'm going to a training next week. So, I mean, here I'm just about to retire, and I'm still going to training. We are some of the most highly trained firefighters there is, both in prescribed fire and wildfire and fire behavior calculations.
1: Well, they call it fire science for a reason because That's science right. is an evolving thing. <laughs> yeah. it never, it's not Absolutely. a constant. You know.
2: Yeah, and we don't claim to know it all. Uh, we have subject matter experts. You know, if I have a question or something, I have biologists that work for me or work with us, and I'll you know refer to them. Hey, what are we doing? Are we doing this right? Is this what you want to see out there? And they'll give me good feedback. You know, and we take that and we implement that into the next plan that we may write. I
0: got okay. think
4: there's a. I'm sorry. I got to think there's a certain amount of pressure. If I'm not mistaken, there's been a couple more out west big fires that started out as prescribed fire, but then all of a sudden the weather changed unexpectedly, and I think wind got them and they carried them away. I mean,
2: yeah, unfortunately, you know, you know we do have you know some fires that do get out of our control, and uh, a lot of times it's because of an unpredicted un- wind event or something like that that wasn't predicted, and those things happen. You know, we try to plan for them, we put mitigation measures in. You know, for me. I always keep a dozer and uh, a couple people available in case I were able to, you know, in case my fire did escape, that I'd have something that I could go fight it with. And it's happened. It, it, it happens to most anybody that doesn't even of prescribed burning. If you've done it any amount of time, you've probably had a fire escape at some point. How big it gets depends on how you react.
4: It would make sense that you have contingencies on top of contingencies for when. Absolutely. The plan yeah. goes awry and then the backup plan <laughs> goes awry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't. When you say people think that they just willy-nilly burn, is people don't realize that it's not just division of fire. You got you know your biologists. Yeah, I mean it's a literally the whole U.S. Forest Service coming together to team up to set this burn in the right place at the right time, and to do the you know proper amount of burn area.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Right place at the right time for the right reason. And so, uh, yeah, we take all that in consideration when we're going out there burning. We're just not going out there and lighting it because we can. Uh, so, you know, if it's if it's a favorable day, we're going to try to find somewhere to burn. That's our job. That's what they pay us to do is do the burning. So,
1: so you got something you want to say, Brian? You keep. I
5: see. <laughs> <laughs> well, about the time I say something, I So how often does a wildfire like help you out like you were planning to burn this area and a fire starts there does that ever happen yeah just out of curiosity
2: and and, you know early on you know wasn't up until the past maybe 15 years we started using those uh, lightning strike fires and started managing them and if they're within a burn unit and we've already got a prescription written for that and we're working within that prescription we'll take it that ignition you know the lightning strike Mm -hmm. And you know, go ahead and take it and make it do what it's supposed to be doing out there and, and, and do a prescribed burn with it. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah.
4: Dang on a briar, you're not just a pretty face. That was a, that was, a, that was yeah. like the top yeah. question, man. That I don't know awesome. if I
3: can I don't know if he even considered a pretty face, but I was gonna say Blondehog <laughs> finds a knicker every now and then. Yeah.
4: <laughs> no, seriously that was a great one, man. That was awesome.
3: So what should
1: outdoors men and women be aware of uh when they're out recreating, like camping and stuff like that? I mean, I, I don't know that I could go I know that my son would not let me go camping without allowing him to roast marshmallows, but, you know.
2: Yeah, that's a staple of going out in the woods being able to build a fire to either cook with or for warming or something like that. You know, just, if I can say anything, have an area cleared around where you want to have your fire and, uh, and completely extinguish it. Do not leave it unattended either. You know, just make sure if it's burning, there's open flame on it, that it's, it's staying attended. And, uh, and when you're ready, all done, and you pack up, uh, just make sure it's completely extinguished take a little shovel with you whatever you got to do to completely extinguish it we'll go to fires every year from campfires that are left unattended and what is completely extinguished well in my terms for my crew it's no heat you put your hand no heat you'd use the back of your hand the back of your hand you just feel for heat yeah you know.
1: and it's not you know and i can tell you from personal experience just because you don't see a flame doesn't mean it's extinguished i've put out several fires in the <laughs> fire pit in the backyard <sighs> with water you go inside look back there 10 minutes later and it's burning again it's reignited itself yeah
2: yeah so that tells on us a lot of times when we're doing prescribed burns you know we'll uh, we'll call them out and uh, a month later we see burning out there so that's exactly what's happening there's heat left over out there that we didn't see needle cast comes down and it starts to reburn
4: so how does fire travel underground
2: so it, it can travel underground a few different ways through a duff you know the, the the dry duff layer and stuff like that a lot of times it'll be dry enough to where it can travel you won't see an open flame on top of the ground but it can consume that duff until it gets into some uh better fuels that'll burn or, or grass or something that will burn also a dead root uh oftentimes you know it i wouldn't say oftentimes but it has happened we'll plow a line around a fire and there will be a root that goes under our line that we just didn't get to with the plow and that fire will just eat at that root and two or three days later we're like well how did this fire come out but it, it followed that route we had a
6: fire on our lease in Georgia that they were uh, the people that were wrecking pine straw were burning mm-hmm. debris that you know pine cones and what have you broken limbs and William and I were leaving. We saw the smoke, and we didn't think nothing of it. I thought, nah, they're just burned. Come to find out, it had gotten out of hand and went onto the property next door and burned. We went back a week or two later, and there was an old light-or-not tree that was just raging fire. And everything else had already burned around it, and the forestry had come in and plowed and put everything out, but that one old lighter knot and I mean it was a huge pine tree that had fallen but that stump was just so full of light it it must have burned for weeks and it's just it's amazing how something you know with the fuel that is in something like that with pine trees and the lighter knot and the sap how it just
2: Okefenokee Swamp uh roughly a little over 100,000 acres burns about every five to ten years the last time it burnt it burnt
5: for a year
4: oh, <laughs> yeah well that was going to be my next question after the underground is it sounds counterintuitive but muck fires are nasty but the whole point is they're muck how does a muck fire how does muck burn
2: uh, mucks is organic soil really it's just decayed you know million year old trees and you know, that has created that and vegetation has created that muck and when it gets so dry it's like a brick of charcoal, you know, that'll that'll ignite and just kind of burn. It doesn't really put out a flame. It just is, you know, smolders. the heat smolders set there and burns and it is some of the nastiest fire but, we fight.
6: But fire needs three things to burn. It needs oxygen, it needs fuel and it needs an ignition. Right. So how is it burning underground? Is, is there? It's just there porous must enough. just be it enough oxygen, enough, yeah, that oxygen can for get it to burn. It.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So it's porous enough oxygen can get to it, and you know, oftentimes as it burns a hole down, so it, it caves in with ash, and then the edges of that are getting all how, the oxygen. How
6: deep can make. a muck fire burn?
2: Oh wow. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> six foot pockets. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's dangerous. Man. It's dangerous. That's it's insane. insane. So trees he's... will fall over, you know, if you're not careful working around those fires and they don't give you a warning when they fall. They you don't hear a crack, you just hear a whoom and they're on the ground. We had a uh, an army uh person that was helping us on a fire down in South Lake County who broke his neck from a muck fire.
4: Oh, man.
3: From a tree fall under Yeah.
4: So, so to be clear, the, the muck might normally be wet, but these happens when Either the water table, or there's not a lot of rain from right. like it, and it just dries out, and all that really super nutrient organic material, I think you already described, it turns into a...
3: Fuel
6: rich. Yeah. yeah, yeah a fire brick.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. yeah wow, it is nasty. So obviously, when something big fire like that happens, everybody comes together, all the agencies. It's not just national. It's state forests. National Forest, local,
2: depending on the level of the fire, yeah, yeah, and where it's at. You know, we have cooperative agreements to work with the State Forest Service uh, anywhere within five miles of our forest boundaries. So yeah, we can go that way, and they can come on to us. And uh, so we have that agreement with them. And if it becomes the fire becomes big enough, and they're requesting assistance from the federal government, we can chip in and help.
3: So can you explain to us the fire danger levels we see on the signs as we enter the forest? You know, Smokey's holding it and it just says medium or higher.
2: Yeah, so those are written, I, I, would, I don't want to say it in a bad way, the, for the layperson, so low, meaning that you could have an ignition that day. It's likely not gonna go very far. It's gonna be in grass fuels where the sun's out there on it. And so when you, you know, that a low day is not a day to worry about. Moderate, you know, you're getting a little bit drier. Ignitions can kind of get up and get maybe a couple acre fire on you. Then as you get into high, the, of course, you know, it's what it is. It's high, you know, so the fire danger level is going on up there a little bit. And then once you get into the extreme level, usually your counties and your state will stop issuing permits. And so those are the days that you're not going to be able to do any kind of debris burning or anything like that.
3: So it's like when it's nice and cold and people want to go have a fire in the woods.
6: How far can can debris carry? I mean, um, self-proclaimed fire permit. Pyromaniac, I, I can build a pretty good and good fire the boys can contest so <laughs> um but how far I mean you know you see the embers going up in the sky and, and I and I always wonder I'm like man I wonder how far that can go so I'll uh, tell
2: you the the, the 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 real answer to that is we have spotting up to a mile sometimes Wow the funny answer to that is is we were doing a prescribed burn and uh, I don't know where we got these things at. they were uh, some type of flare system that come from the military and uh, me and my boss were sitting out there, and we were like playing with them. We just we were shooting them off into the burn, and we were just picking them out of a box. We didn't know what we grabbed. We would just shoot them <laughs> off out into the burn. Well, there was one with a parachute. Oh, <laughs> sounds like, like that. Uh... <laughs> and we shot it, <laughs> and the wind caught it, and there it went to the oh, other side no. of our line. So yeah, so that those kind can carry, you know, close <laughs> distance. Got to watch out for those. Sounds Should you like have told they, that uh... story? Sounds like they gave you
1: sounds like they gave you pin flares.
2: Yeah, I couldn't tell you what they were, but yeah. We no longer used them. We gave them to the state. Now there's another story of what they did with it. They they <laughs> called it the RPG fire. <laughs> I'd have loved to seen the
4: expression on the face when they let it go and all of a sudden they realize, uh oh, this guy <laughs> <got to laughs> You look at him, I'm looking at you, that look on the it face like what down. have we done? <laughs>
1: So I know we we kind of touched on the the planning and stuff that, that goes on before a controlled burn, but how much planning prescribed uh, prescribed, prescribed burn, burn? How much planning really goes into the, if you could dive into that a little deeper? All the planning that goes into a prescribed burn.
2: So yeah, so uh, one of the things we get is we got to write a prescription. A prescription is our weather. What is the exact weather parameters that we want for that burn? And uh, you know our prescription here on our forest, we're pretty much writing them. I would say, I don't wanna say wide open, but they're pretty broad and that gives us a lot of leeway to go out there and burn with different conditions. Uh, we, we burn with, you know, humidities as low as in the 30s and winds up to 20. And so you would say, well, why would you burn with a wind up to 20? That's our cutoff limit. So if I had rained the day before, I might need that little bit of wind to get my fire to carry that day. So a 20 mile an hour wind can work for you, but of course you wouldn't burn with a 20 mile an hour wind if you got a RH, you know, that's running in the below 50, you know, 40 or something like that, you wouldn't want to do it. So you can use that to play around with, uh, you know, we burn for the reasons of wildlife, vegetation, you know, you asked me about vegetation and stuff like that, you know, what's, what benefits from the burn, so. We got to take all that in consideration we're talking with our biologists you know about right when we write our prescription is this going to meet what you need out there for uh, that specific uh, critter that we're burning for
5: so what, what all do you consider when you consider how much area and where you burn is that like is that more of the biologist
2: side no that, that that's my job uh every year things are on a rotation based on the fuels that are out there. So when I talk about fuels, uh, our sand hills, we call it, which is longleaf wiregrass. Longleaf wiregrass naturally in in nature would burn every one to two years. Uh, And then you go into like a flatwoods component, which is your uh, palmetto gallberry slash pine. Those are more on a three to five year rotation. So we try to keep that rotation going, you know, in, in our planting cycles. And so I'll use that. I'll, I got a map that sits right behind me, and I can look up every one of those burns on that map and find out when it was burned last. And that helps me plan for that next year's burning.
6: Does fire kill cogon grass?
2: Kogan grass loves fire. Cogon <sighs> grass thrives for fire. Cogon has a rhizome that can bury itself almost six feet deep. Jeez. For
6: those of you that don't know, cogon grass is a very invasive species. Very invasive, yeah. And if you, it'll carry from. A, a piece of a blade of grass on a bush hog to miles down the way
2: right and i've been seeing a lot a lot more cogan grass on our forest than i have seen in a long time and we're aggressively trying to get it but it it just seems like for every two steps forward we take one back what do you what do you use to kill it uh they're using uh, is
6: it just roundup or no, well, I shouldn't I, say you know, roundup.
2: I, I I don't want to I don't want to say because I don't really know. That's not what I do. What they're spraying, the chemicals they're spraying, but we have uh, people that are just doing it constantly. That yeah. is their job, just about. To go you out you and spray can drive that. down the
6: road and see where somebody has. If you know what kogan grass is, you can see where somebody sprayed it, and, and just on the side of the road. Um, yeah, it, it's. I know I've gone up. What's it back way comes into Buck and Doe?
2: Four uh, fifty. Force road 8 what we call it. Yeah, you can see it's where they've hit road. it
6: on the sides of the roads in spots where it's just dead. Been
2: treated, yeah, yeah. and it, it's a treatment. Then you come back a, several months later and you have to treat it again. So it's an ongoing process, and we're never going to eradicate it, I don't no. think. we just got to try to control it.
4: You know, earlier, Bill used the – I'm sorry, Will use the phrase controlled burn, and Bill mentioned – now we call it prescribed burn. Just out of curiosity, where did the phraseology change? Is it because, is it to remind you? Well, you're still playing with fire, and there's really no way to control it if it doesn't want to be controlled. Or,
2: yeah, you know, prescribed burn, control burn, uh, are all planned ignitions—they're they're the same thing. But it's a planned ignition; it's intentionally going out there and putting fire on a landscape that you've put a lot of work into. Got a good prescription for it. You meet all your parameters. So when we're saying control burn, we're saying the same thing as prescribed burn. You know, one, uh, you know, is a little bit, there, there's no difference in the two terms, really.
4: Thank you. So thank you for explaining that control burn, prescribed fire, they're all the same thing. But I think it's probably important to know that um, um, what steps do you take to ensure that the fire that you're intentionally igniting remains under relative control.
2: Yeah, so uh you know, prior to ignition, we go out there and we'll either disk a control line down the mineral soil completely around the fire and uh or plow a line sometimes and uh, we use a lot of natural barriers, you know, rivers, creeks, stuff like that. Uh sometimes just vegetation itself can create a natural barrier for it. It may not burn that time of the year for instance, sand pine. Uh, you have to be really dry before sand pine will burn and so we can burn some of our prairies uh, when it's fairly wet out we know sand pine won't burn we can burn some of our some of our prairies and uh, and use the sand pine as a control line uh, you know with that being said i have a fleet of equipment out there on site with me i have helicopters available if i need them uh, bulldozers with plows on them so all of that's used to kind of keep it in control Hopefully, we don't got to utilize that. We, our weather is another factor that we'll use to keep our fires in control. Uh, you know, we don't want to burn, obviously, I think I mentioned earlier, with high winds and low relative humidities.
3: So, you mentioned storms, and you know, Florida is like, Florida's weather is ever-changing, right? So, it, it could say it's going to storm today, and it doesn't storm at all, but it's not supposed to storm tomorrow. It's just complete downpour. So, what, what kind of role do storms play?
2: Uh, you know in the springtime storms are a major role for us because of the lightning that comes from them and that's a natural occurrence you know forever we've had fires on this uh, in florida because of lightning and so that has kind of shaped the, the landscape the way it was supposed to look and then then along comes smoky bear <laughs> saying put out fires put out fires put out fires so we got into this era to where we wanted to go out and put all wildfires out and so now you know in, you know the later years now we're thinking you know maybe some of these fires aren't so bad maybe we need to start reintroducing some of these fires and that's where we're at you know we're out here trying to reintroduce fires we talked about when we do get lightning fires you know going out and trying to manage them now if it's an intentional set fire you know i tend to not want to do that with them i want to put them out but lightning strike fires in an area where i have a prescription if we can we'll go out and manage that fire
1: so you, you kind of touched on that equipment a little bit, and I, I you see all sorts of equipment. You you got the helicopters that are dumping water and all kinds of what what kind of equipment? To, I would let's say special equipment. Do you guys use when you're doing these prescribed burns?
2: So uh, well for prescribed burns, of course the the, the go to tool is a drip torch on the ground. You know that's a little pot with a uh, diesel gasoline mix in it, and uh, I like to say that it's. Uh, in the right hands of a person, you can use it as a paintbrush out there walking across the ground with it. If you put fire in the right spot and and let it run, say for instance, I'm uh, on a sand hill and I wanna take out some oaks out there and I'm walking across through there, well, rather than get right up close to those oaks that I wanna kill, I'll back off of them a little bit and take and put that fire out there and let it run into those oaks and try to knock them back a little bit further. So we're looking at that stuff with the drip torch, doing it by hand. All of our baselines are almost lit with a drip torch. Uh, we have a thing called a pyro shot. If you've ever uh, done paintball, it is a hyped-up paintball gun that shoots fire. Now we're talking. It shoots a little ball with potassium permanganate in it, and it injects that ball with glycol. And it can throw it up to maybe 150 yards and 100 yards probably on a good charge. Yeah, you can shoot it about 100 yards. And it just goes out, it's time delayed. It. it goes out there, sits there for a minute, and then it ignites. And so th- those are fun. We keep those around. Uh, you know, that's one of our arsenal things that we can use. And then, you know, when we get up with the helicopter, we got what we call a PSD machine, which does a lot of the similar uh, things as a power shot. It, shoots a, it drops a little ball with potassium permanganate in it and injects it with glycol. And uh, when we're burning big acres, that's the go-to tool. You're not going to walk a 1,000-acre fire. Uh, I'd kill so my crew would quit. that would be 1,000 acres. Especially uh, in the summertime. So we'll, we'll get a helicopter up in there. We'll use our uh, drip torch for what we call our baseline. We'll get that lit with our drip torches. And uh, when we feel safe with that, we'll say launch the ship. So if we'll get up there. We'll talk about what kind of patterns we want to do with it. Now, that's gonna, based on the fire activity that we're seeing. And, and uh, we can change that up. That machine can drop, you know, four high, four low, three high, three low, and that means it's got four shoots on it. It can drop four balls at a time, real fast, or we can slow it down. It can drop four balls real slow. So it's 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 an art, you know. And when you learn it and play with it right you can get the right effects from it you got it's that
1: you got an amazon leak for that flaming paintball gun you're talking <laughs> about those <laughs> over on twitch and google to get shot man they yeah. made in georgia i actually met the
2: people know the people that make them that's, so, that's a pretty cool piece of equipment you're talking about there yeah that And there's another the green dragon it's similar to that and it's mounted it's a mounted one a fixed one you can mount it to a utv a little bit bigger a little bit bigger hopper carries a few more balls in it and uh you know, being in a UTV, you could drive down a road and you say you've got a canal there, and you can't get fire on the other side canal or whatever is there that you can't get on the other side of. You just hit a little electric button there, and it
6: just. It beats throwing a flaming arrow, shooting a flaming <laughs> <Yeah>. arrow. <laughs> so you yeah, know, old school people, you say
2: flaming arrow. Yeah. You know, um, uh, back are you in the day, old? They, they, they Are you saying so, I'm old or what? No, I'm just saying, old school brother, I'm as old as you are. Uh, they would dip kerosene wick uh, rope. And drag it behind horses. So that was the early way of setting fires in yeah. Florida was to drag it. I've taken palm fronds before. They are excellent for dragging fire because oh, yeah. when they're burning, they'll break off little pieces and all these little pieces will start fires. And you can just literally drag a palm. That frong and lighter now
6: is my number one fire starter. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides
3: <Yeah>. gasoline, but. <laughs> so when you say you guys wouldn't want to work a thousand acre fire, when you guys do you know, you set up your plan and everything. What is your, your average size that you look for to do a fire?
2: 1,000 acres.
3: 1,000 <laughs> acres. 1,000 uh,
2: acres. We've done as much as 5,000. I mean, that's a whopper. Man, you've you got to have your ducks in a row to take on something like that. You know, our sand hills up here are averaging, you know, anywhere from 700 to 1,200 acres. Uh, and what you all are probably familiar with what we call the paisley woods out there. It's not uncommon for me to do 2,000 acres a day out there. Uh, when you get into flatwoods, you got to be a little bit more careful. Your palmetto gallberry, you got to be a little bit more careful, you know, uh, getting big with those. We just did one uh, a couple years ago, almost 5,000-acre flatwoods <sharp inhale> burn. That that bad boy went, man. It put a column up, and the column collapsed on us. And so when that, what I'm saying is, is it puts all this smoke up in the air, and it gets so heavy, and it's not moving off. It just comes right straight back down. And when it comes down, it's bringing a lot of wind with it. Oh boy. so yes. we had a couple spot fires get out. We got them real quick, but uh, you got to be careful with it for sure. So that's I guess crazy. that's
6: where the helicopters come into play as well, monitoring how your burn is going.
2: Absolutely, yeah. We'll, we'll ask them often, you know, hey, how's our smoke doing? you know? They'll say, you know, it's shearing off at about 2,000 feet, you know, headed out. So uh, smoke management is a big part of managing the prescribed burn. If I can't manage the smoke, I won't light it just because I can light it on the ground. Uh, and, but I can't manage to smoke. Yeah, we're not going to light them. That's, and that's
6: environmentally, sure. what do they? What do the environmental people say about the smoke?
2: You know, there's EPA guidelines that we have to follow under the two point four and stuff like that particulate matters, and uh, we have not set off any you know red flags with that. But we do watch uh, every morning. I have to look at their. Uh, uh, they, they send a map out, and I look at that map for their 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 uh, what do I want to say their I don't want to say it ain't ozone or something, but anyway, they got a colored map. If their map is in orange or yellow, I have to be careful if my smoke smoke is going to drift over in that area.
6: It's been a pretty slow year this year with with fires in Florida. Anyway, I it know. Is. Well, yeah. I, I guess probably earlier the nation,
4: this year I mean, it wasn't. We had a lot of fires earlier this we? year.
2: Yeah, January, February, March, we had quite a few.
4: So, changing gears a little bit, what's the necessity? Why are prescribed? Why is prescribed fire necessity in Florida? And if you can roll into that. Is there any place that hasn't adopted that? Is there any? Is there any are there any? Well, I'm butchering this question. I'm wondering if there's any states or, or municipalities, whatever, that yeah. have, are, are consciously shying away from prescribed fire.
2: So let me address the first part of that, the necessity to it. So we talked a little bit. You know, fire has been here forever. Native Americans used fire. They understood the importance of fire. When Florida was first settled, read some of the documents. They talked about being able to take wagons across the flatwoods areas here. Well, how can you imagine taking a wagon across that if it hasn't ever had fire across there? You would never be able to do it. And so we weren't fighting fires back then. So how did that look like that? That was all natural occurrence. Fire just got in there, started from a lightning strike, burned up on the hill. And that happened in those areas we talked about every three to five years. So that kept that vegetation down. Uh, The Native Americans knew the importance of prescribed burn. They would burn for insect control. You know, they liked it. They wanted to be able to walk across through that land. They didn't want to struggle. So they, they knew how important it was and knew how to use it. Uh, and so the second part of your question is, has everybody adopted prescribed burning? Uh, they're getting more and more on board with it, but th- the answer to that question is no, they really haven't. Some of the Western states struggle with that, and a lot of that's political. You know, a lot of the people that live out there, they don't want to deal with seeing the smoke. They don't want to deal with... Uh, seeing the charred land and stuff like that so uh yeah so that you know out there it's a little bit we struggle with it uh it's becoming more and more accepted and i think you're seeing right now in california with some of the bad fires they're having out there that they're realizing that hey look we need to start maybe managing this a little bit better than what we are
4: look from what i saw when i was out there it does appear that they've had some fires that were so hot and maybe maybe i'm mistaken but it almost seems like they were so hot that when they ran up the hillside, I mean, big trees are all torched. I mean, it's just totally black, totally dead. And this is, you know, a year, two years after the fire went through. I would assume that that fire burned so hot that it pretty much cooked all the mineral soil off. Is it? Does that actually happen, or am I just, am I mistaking what I'm seeing? No,
2: that, that can happen out there. And we have a crew called a bear crew and uh, I don't even try to say what the air acronym for BEAR means, but their job is to go out and do studies on how bad did the soil get damaged from a wildfire out there and can it be recovered and what it would take to recover that. And so there's efforts into coming back there and trying to repopulate the soil so we can get some of the trees, you know, to grow back in those areas. And unfortunately, you know, uh, Trees don't grow fast out there, you know. They've been there for years and years and years, and they just don't grow back as fast as they do here. We're subtropical here. We can get a tree back in, you know, 20, 30 years. Whereby out there, it's, you know, 50, 60, 100 years. What so,
6: for a prescribed burn, what's better, a fast fire or a slow fire?
2: That's a depends question. If I'm burning down the Florida Keys, I want a fast fire. And the reason I say that, the Florida Keys sets on cap rock you don't want to consume that Duff. You want that rock because that's your soul. If you consume that, you want your fire to get on across it and go out. So up here, you know, a slow fire, we may want to consume some of our Duff up here because we got so much of it. If I haven't had fire in that area in a long time, you know, I might want to start consuming some of that Duff. So a slower fire would work for me.
3: So you can, you said Duff is the soil or can you explain to us exactly what Duff is?
2: It's that organic layer that lays right on top of the ground the first you know, six inches or so of it um, is the duff that I'm talking about. Okay. And so as fire's not been around, if we, if we didn't do prescribed fire, that layer of duff just builds up and builds up and builds up. And, uh, and that's not natural for some of the areas around here. And so we try to eat at that and get that back down to a sustainable you know, area where we can get some of the plants. There's a seed bank that lays down there that is just waiting to sprout. But uh, and if you got six inches, seven inches of duff on it, it'll never get the the sunlight to sprout.
3: I was gonna ask what, what role duff played, but he just said he just said it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it seems like it seems like palmettos
6: thrive after a fire. Is that is that the case? I mean, I you're yeah. burning all that under them dead and under, but it you know you, you it looks like you got a little sprig sticking out of the top of it, but then a couple weeks later it's like. Whew, it's like that fire just fed it.
2: Florida it's, is an, a fire adapted ecosystem. If it is in Florida, it likes fire. If it's growing in Florida, it likes fire. you know it really does. And so every part of Florida is burnt at one time or another, even our swamps. So uh, if you know palmetto, they like fire. They get to watch a palmetto burn is really neat when you're doing prescribed burn. You'll see fire get close to it and it starts getting this waxy film on it. And that's the oils in that palmetto frong starting to come out and that's very volatile, those oils are. And when you start seeing that, that thing is just explosive and it just goes.
3: So being on like this subject, what is the biggest benefit to prescribed burn? You
2: know, the benefit from prescribed burn that we see most is just the, uh, for me in fire, let me just speak from a fire aspect, It's the fuel reduction part. I'm getting rid of fuels. So that if I do have a wildfire come through there, I'll be able to manage that wildfire a lot better. Uh, the benefit from a biologist would be like, wow, look, you know, we've got all this new green vegetation growing up in here. We've knocked back some of these oaks so that our RCWs can, you know, have a better habitat to survive in.
4: RCW is red, cocka- <clears throat> red cockaded woodpecker, right? Thank you. Yeah, I'm Earlier, sorry. <laughs> Earlier you mentioned you're, doing, you're introducing those. Is that something that the U.S. Forest Service is doing? Are they trying to reintroduce that woodpecker into different parts of Ocala?
2: You know, I am proud to say that the Ocala has finally reached a sustainable population of RCW, red-cockaded woodpeckers. We have uh, reintroduced them up until a few years ago, and now we've got enough clusters out there that we are producing RCW, red-cockaded woodpeckers. Uh, We were transplanting them down from Tallahassee up on the Appalachicola. We would go up there and get some of their RCWs and bring them down here and introduce them.
4: That's a great story because those things are dependent on the long needle pine, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, they're mostly on what we call our sand hills out there, and so the long leaf wiregrass areas is where you'll find them. Uh, when you're when you're out there in the area, you see a white band around a tree, that's a cavity tree. Uh, it could be a government housing cavity tree, or it could be a natural cavity tree. Government housing means we went out there and, and created a home for them. I saw
6: one the other day, and this is no lie. Pecking on a galvanized power pole it looked like it had it looked like it had, must have been struck by lightning and there, there was i i took a picture of it and i zoomed in on it there was a little hole in the galvanized pole and that thing i thought how in the heck is he even hanging on there and it was a little black spot and when i took the picture and zoomed in there was actually a hole in that galvanized power pole transmission power pole and i thought what the heck what is he pecking away,
2: hanging on to that Maybe little bit. Something attracted to, to that yeah. powerful. I couldn't tell you why. Maybe I, there was an insect in there inside the, the, I, the pipe. I couldn't tell you. But they're tough. So
4: you that, that, no, Obviously. You mentioned the white band. Is that just U.S. Forest Service or is that somewhat universal as a management tool? Because we've seen them. We've walked around and I've seen these white banded trees.
2: It's 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 universal. It's it's. Mostly the RCWs are occurring here in the southern regions, and so it's it's mostly here in the southern. The white banded trees indicate a cavity tree. Doesn't mean that there's a, a bird in that tree, but it means that tree has uh, either had a cavity in or or has a you know a, a man-made cavity for better. So
3: words. How do you guys create these man-made cavities?
2: Uh, that's a job you got to be certified to do it too man so uh we got these swedish climbing ladders we call them they're just ladders that go straight up they're real narrow and uh, you climb up there with a chainsaw so you got this little box so the box has a a cavity and it's pre-made and uh you climb up that thing with your chainsaw you sit up there and you scribe a little hole on the side of that tree and uh, you go at it with your chainsaw just boring straight in and take a chisel and chisel it out and stick your your insert in there, and and pack a bunch of wood putty in it so it don't go nowhere, and put a little screen or something on the front of it so that the uh, pileated woodpeckers don't go in there and have their you know way with it, and uh, and there you go, government housing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. neat. That's that that's definitely
1: something that it it feels good to hear. It's it's a conservation success story to know now that Ocala has. Uh, a sustainable population of those once again. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah. And we're seeing a lot more of those kind of success stories. Uh, we have one of the we have the biggest uh, population of uh, scrub jays anywhere right now, and so uh, management tool for scrub jay. We're just now getting into where we're doing prescribed burning in our uh, sand pine. And, uh, and I'm here to tell you, man, that's that's you better have your ducks in a row when you're burning sand pine.
6: Because- I, I heard that they're trying to change the state bird now from the mockingbird to s- several different birds, and one of them is a scrub jay, that yeah. they're talking about making the state bird instead of the mockingbird. The other is osprey, but um there's several in the list but one of them is the
2: scrub jay i would vote for the scrub jay because yeah, i put I'm... a lot of time and effort managing scrub jays so, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that bird gets my vote you know i've spent a lot of sweat afterwards. that's a unique
1: bird I, yeah, I say i'm pushing for the scrub jay too yep. because so, the, the, the scrub jay is that's our bird that's our
2: bird man there's yep. not a lot of scrub. so if you think let's go back three million years ago when florida was just a little peninsula well the ocala the forest was that peninsula, and so it's built on a sand dune, and so you can imagine all that white, pretty sand out there was once a sand dune, and that's what created that scrub out there, and that's why we have one of the largest continuous scrubs in the world, anywhere in the world, out here. And so uh, the little scrub jay bird loves it; he likes it about five foot high. He don't like a lot of real tall scrubs, so we have to manage it. And when we do it, uh, pretty much we're taking all the vegetation out there and burning it to the ground if we can. That's why when I said, you know, you better have your ducks in a row, you better have them in a row because you're burning on a, a really dry day uh, to get the scrub to burn.
3: So when you talk about the scrub, for people that don't know, you know, what, what makes a scrub a scrub?
2: Uh, it's the top oak that grows out there and with a sand pine overstory on it. And, uh, Generally, we talked earlier, you know, that I can use sand pine to control fire with sometimes. It's one of those, it's either feast or famine where it will either burn or either won't burn or when it burns, it burns like a scalded dog. I mean, it, it rips. Uh, I can tell you a story of the fastest fire in, uh, in America was in the scrub, was here on the Ocala, on this forest in 1935. So yeah, it, the, the scrub's very unique. Uh, I think it was early early settlers, you know, the, the desolate area that nobody wanted to settle it. You couldn't farm it. You couldn't do nothing with it. But uh, I, I think it's neat.
6: Why Why did they, and you may not know this, why do they replant with, with sand pines? I mean, they look, there's nothing straight about them. It doesn't look like a good piece of wood that you could do anything okay. with. But they continue, they, they cut them and they track over them with choppers yep. and Yep. is it because they're easy to plant
2: no 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 it, it's because it's native it's what belongs there it, it, it's the species that belongs there and it, it does have some value uh we sell constantly for uh, pulpwood. Okay. so all the pulpwood that you get from this region probably come from uh, the ocala national forest we sell a tremendous a lot of sand pine
4: you know, it's neat to hear you chat about the scrub <clears throat> we had um carrie in here it was it was great to hear somebody speak so passionately about the scrub because a lot of us, or a lot of people, when they're out there, they're driving through the forest. They like you know the big piney areas and they like the springs, and you get out there in the scrub, especially if it's June, and you're like, oh, but yeah. you know it is, and it's, and I was trying to explain to my wife that once you learn the story of the scrub. you're out there you see it for the beauty that it is because you're not going to find it anywhere else no it
2: it grows very few other places here in florida you know Uh, so we're very fortunate to have that out here and you know and i've grown to love it i really have you know you can go out there and uh get your ocala pinstripes going on for better work <laughs> I <was gonna> say, <laughs> it's Nick, you know it's thick you're going to scrape your vehicle oh, driving yeah. it, you know for sure
6: i never but, heard him called that i, I was going to say uh, I, I can i
1: can relate yeah.
6: if you uh if
1: you ever wondered what what a scrub oak is is the one that's going ee- down the side of your truck <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Have a gallon. <laughs> there you go so my
2: first experience burning the scrub was on the bombing range, and uh, it was this, it's called stand replacement burning, and we were burning mm-hmm. immature sand pine. And uh, I was equipment operator back then, and my boss was telling me he said, "Hey Dwight, you know when we light this line, I, I don't want you to let this fire get out of my get out of control. I want you to, to get on it." And I'm looking at when he lit that line, I'm saying, "What do you mean when it gets out? I'm like, no, not if <laughs> I'm like when it gets out of control because it was." Those flames went from zero to sixty feet at the blink of an eye, and it stayed mm. in control. Did exactly what it was supposed to, but it was impressive. I mean, it's it's it takes the trees out. That's the intent of it. You want to kill all the vegetation to get it down to uh,
4: what the scrub jay like. Plan the work and work the plan. There you go. Do you think that was his way of saying welcome to Ocala? <laughs> he no, he no knew what that was going to do. He knew the visual impact. Uh, I hear you. Yeah.
5: So so how often do y'all get to burn on the bombing range considering uxo and or people that don't know what uxo is unexploded ordnance? uh
2: so we have prescriptions for the bombing range and, and sand pine generally burns anywhere from 10 to 15 years on a return interval so we try to go back in there every 10 to 15 years now fortunately the uh the uh, Navy has set a few fires in there for us. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we can't go in there and plow those fires out. So we, we manage them. We set out on the road and we'll light with helicopters or whatever we got to do and, and try to manage those fires and keep them within the designated bombing range. And we've been pretty successful. I've, I've burned out thousands of acres out there of scrub uh, from uh, misguided missiles. <laughs> yeah.
6: I've, I've well, seen, there was uh, a misguided plane not too many years ago that, didn't one crash not too far across yeah, from we, Silver Glen, interest of uh, in Silver missed, Glen?
2: They, the, well, the Navy had a mishap up there. So <laughs> I know him <them> very well.
1: <laughs> I've seen quite a few pretty good, pretty dang good fires set on set from tracer rounds and grenades and everything else yeah. on,
2: on military
1: ranges. Yeah. Uh, I, I've You've had, been up uh, to
2: Stark. I think they do that up Stark with tracer rounds.
1: I, I've had the have had the pleasure of being handled the uh, handed the broom handle with a piece of looks like a piece of carpet on the end. Go put it out. <laughs> <laughs> put it out flapper. before it gets out of yeah flapper
2: flapper i've never used one of those tools people ask me what's my favorite hand tool i tell them a tractor plow <laughs> i'm not gonna get a shovel
1: yeah when you're the low man on the totem pole in the army you get what they give you and yeah, that's there. the flapper here's a push mower yeah
5: and it don't even have a motor on it it's one of them old ones where you got to push it the blade, you the blade of spin. spin, yeah. So you
1: you've been at this quite a long time. I know you've got so You've already told a few of your stories, but let's uh, let's hear some of uh, maybe your best memories, some funny stories.
2: Uh, so I can you know I'll talk a little bit about the worst fire we've ever had on the forest, and then I'll tell you the worst fire I've ever seen on the forest. So the worst fire occurred on the Okanagan Forest in 1935. It was called the Big Scrub Fire. It burned roughly thirty-five thousand acres, and it, and it did that in three hours, y'all. It burned from Stark's Ferry Bridge all the way to uh, Lake George, and it did it in three hours. Now, thirty-five
6: thousand acres sounds a lot, but how many acres are in the Will Call National Forest?
2: Uh, a little under four thousand, four hundred.
6: Four hundred thousand.
2: But when you, when you got a fire like that, a wind driven fire, it, it's not going to grow to the side. It's going to shoot off like a cigar. It's just going to be a long straight beeline fire. And then once it hit the lake, then the flanks started growing, and that was the most growth of that fire. So it, I think it was like 15, it took it 15,000 acres to go from Stark to Lake George, and then the rest of the growth come from the flanks. So, you know, that's the fastest moving fire in America history. I, it may be broke now, I, I can't tell you, but, you know, the Ocala had that record for many years and still may have it. I don't know. So uh, I can tell you this, I've had the pleasure of seeing what I think was the second fastest moving fire on the Ocala. Uh, it was happened on a Saturday, you know, back up one day, Friday, we're doing a prescribed burn uh, over by Thompson Pond. And I had my crew come in Saturday. I said, look, we're gonna come in, we're gonna go mop up on our prescribed burn, make sure it's all in check. And we were out there doing that. And all of a sudden the winds come in, the winds were howling. And that's the same time the rainbows Thought they were going to burn their garbage, and so they were up there burning some garbage at Hopkins Prairie, and it got out on them. And and when it got out, it got out with a fury. It just took off. So my dispatch calls me, says, "Hey, you know, we got a wildfire. What can you release?" I'm like, "I don't have much. I'm trying to hold my prescribed burn in. You know, I got everything I got here, but we're, we're we're coming." So I got two tractor plow units, and I'm in tow headed to this fire, and I'm all the way down in Altoona. Going north on 19, just as soon as I hit 19, this fire was in Salt Springs. I could see the smoke just, just a getting it. And so uh, immediately we started ordering resources. Unfortunately, that fire, it, it was only 2,000 acres. It was another one of those. It just ran into the lake. And if it had not been for the lake, it would have been the ocean. Uh, there was no catch in that fire. Uh, we use things by chains an hour. A chain is 66 feet. So uh, I had a buddy of mine do some behavior calculation runs on that. that fire was doing I think he said roughly 90 to 100 chains an hour, and that, that's booking in fire terms. Mm. That, that is a booking fire. And so, uh, unfortunately, we lost 28 structures. Yeah, mm. I think 16 of those were people houses. Whoa. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a bad fire. That was a getting it fire, you know.
1: So I want to clarify for some of our listeners that don't know, you mentioned rainbows. Uh, the rainbows or rainbow people are a self-named proclaimed group that tends to come down in the wintertime. Um, yeah. And they live in and around the Ocala National Forest.
3: They're hippies. In a yeah, proud of that way.
1: Yeah. But yeah, they, so they, I mean, they drive around in a dang bus that says <laughs> was the Rainbow Nation or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So they're down here mostly, uh, like you said, the winter times. Their big event is Valentine's Day. They're here for Valentine's Day. So that's the time of the year that we'll see them. For the most part, you know, they're out there doing their thing. They leave people alone, but there is, you know, a fair amount of them that are uh, that are not good, that are the criminal element. And, you know, they do not intentionally set fires. You know I can honestly say they're not a big problem, but they will leave campfires unattended. They will, like they started this fire, you know, they will make mistakes like that. So, yeah.
1: From what I understand, they do tend to clean up after themselves pretty well, too. Well, that was a cleanup crew. That yeah.
2: was the crew that was left behind. The, the whole crowd had left, and the cleanup crew was left behind, and, and they just chose to burn it rather than pack it out. And uh, I happened to run into them on that road. They had their bus stuck broadside in the road. And uh, there was probably <laughs> about 15 people out there, you know. And I'm like, y'all better get this thing out of the way. I have two bulldozers coming that we're going to shove it out of the way if you don't move it. So <laughs> they got to pushing a little harder after I said that. The,
6: the fire towers that, you know, up on 44 or 40 and, 40 and 88, um, are they a thing of the past because of yeah. technology?
2: Yeah, absolutely, a thing of the past. When I started with this state uh, back in 89, uh, we staffed fire towers. And uh, it wasn't my job with them. They had regular designated fire tower people. But occasionally I would have to staff them. And uh, you find fires. They find fires. I mean, it's, And it's uniquely how, how well that they can pinpoint a fire. They will take one fire tower. Uh, when it reports a smoke, they'll call another fire tower that's you know at a different degree angle from it, and they'll shoot azimuths. And they'll cross those asthmas and where they cross at is really, really accurate to where that fire will be at. And then they'll dispatch a crew on the ground to go out
4: there and take care of it. So they need to start sending you around to all those kids in geometry class going, when am I going to use this? <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> uh, there's yeah. a lot of math into it. i yeah. can tell you that. I have a, I have a fire calculation math book that's probably a couple hundred pages long. Yeah.
1: So tell me some of your funny stories.
2: A funny story, wow. Okay. What uh, well, these rainbow
0: good. people? So they park a bus across the <laughs> road. <laughs> that always California. seems to stump the, people the, when you ask to them California. that. <laughs> Let's
6: go to
2: California. Uh, <laughs> the name of the fire. There's been a lot of them. I think it was called the Hell's Half. But we're in California. where My team is. We're out there. I'm a division supervisor. And uh, I have my whole division over there. And I'm in charge of protecting this camp, which happened to be a Buddhist camp. and And, and that's okay. You know, they had probably 15 or 16 structures out there and uh, I thought well great you know they got this huge pond out in the middle of their camp you know I can I can throw some pumps in that pond and set sprinklers up and you know what better water source you know they had a little dock there I had my pump set up on the dock and we're pumping water man we're sprinklers are running and I'm pumping water and uh, we had them evacuated they weren't in there but the the leader of the group there i don't know what his title was but he come back in there and he chewed me out i mean he gave me up and down he had a sacred turtle in that (laughs) pond and and man it got so bad that i had to pull my pumps out of that pond he would rather his buildings burn down than me jeopardize that turtle so that was that was a a, a weird deal that whole fire y'all was a just a weird weird deal i I met um I met a guy named uh, his last name was Benton and if you're old like me you remember his sister was Barbie Benton oh yeah so he he, he was a, uh, a photographer for Hugh Hefner okay and so <laughs> he had a little house way out in the middle of the woods out here and uh, I used to like check on him every morning because he had blackberries growing I remember going out there and just saying hey are you doing okay you know picking his blackberries and eating them but uh, he would come out of his house every morning with a bottle of jack daniels and a gatorade <laughs> first thing in the oh, morning man. is how that man would come out and greet me and i just make sure he's okay he had everything he needed but yeah that was a very unique individual out there so yeah
4: so wait was he related to barbie benton
2: It was a brother he so was barbie he was Hugh Hefner's first paid photographer. this is what he tells me you know
4: that's creepy because barbie benton was a playboy bunny who was intimate with hugh hefner and her brother was a photographer
2: yeah i wasn't the first pays what he me oh you, yeah. god that's
4: weird that's creepy yeah.
3: that's uh that's got ocala written all over it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey i wouldn't say ocala i'd say paisley Pays,
2: Paisley. <laughs> Touching them all,
4: boys. Name a few more states. We're going to you know, lose. V- listeners there. are going down the drain. You know, then, then, you know out
2: there, we, uh, we we ended up having to protect this guy's marijuana grove. He was a licensed <laughs> grower, and uh, he, he had the coolest little system out there to get to where he was at. He had uh, So he's on a little island between two rivers, and he had this little trolley that sat there with a cable and a little motor. You, you crank this little motor up, and you got in this little chair, and it trollied you across the river, you know? And that's how he got out there to his island. Jeez. And so, uh, yeah, we went out there and we had to, you know, do our thing out there to protect his marijuana. <laughs> I never in my life thought I would be doing something like that. You know? <laughs> wow. that's crazy. Mm.
1: Well, so at the end of every episode, we'd like to do a under-pressure outdoors tip of the week. You got a tip for us?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm a big advocate for just you know taking care of the forest. You know my biggest pet peeve is people going out on our forest out here. We are so lucky and privileged to have the Ocala Forest as our backyard. And uh, for the folks that go out there and just throw their garbage out in those woods, please, 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 <laughs> if you see it, uh, just report it. You know if if you're doing it, don't ever do it again. You know this is our national forest land. We don't have much forest in Florida anymore. You see more and more homes growing. You know, when I first started my career on south of uh, in 27 in Claremont, uh, all those homes down there were once pine trees. So, yeah, we're losing our, our, our land, and the Ocala's, you know, one of the biggest areas that we got left, and so we want to take care of it. So the tip I would tell people is, you know, just you know help us keep it clean and, uh, and just report, you know, people dumping on it when you see them.
4: Dwight is not a paid spokesman for Under Pressure Outdoors. And our effort to pull tons of trash every year out of Ocala, I, yeah,
2: and we appreciate that, and we are very aware that you folks are doing that. You know,
5: those I mean, folks
4: did get me some a nice
5: set of first light clothes. Just saying, I'd say we <laughs> <laughs> we won gobblers and
1: garbage last year, strictly on garbage pulled out of the Ocala National Forest. But man, I would challenge everybody <laughs> out there to make us lose or make us search somewhere yeah, else in Ocala. do that. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Absolutely.
4: You got an answer as to why when you go out there and you're pulling beer bottles? why there's more Bud Light bottles in the forest than I think all the rest of the beer combined?
2: Problem. I think it's a culture. I, I, I think, you know, <laughs> the people seeing their parents do it and then they just grew up and that's how they did it. They just leave their garbage, you know. So somehow we got to turn that curve. You know, we just got to. you know, you used to see uh, the commercials with that Native American, you know, that yeah. uh, was out there, you know, doing the commercials saying, please don't litter in our forest. So we need to start getting that word back out there like we used to.
4: That's funny. We we I mentioned that months ago on another podcast that as a little kid we used to and Are you are 50ish, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: 50ish.
0: 50ish. Yeah. So, but
4: that was a big thing and like so that's how we just grew up. There was there was no way in God's green earth I would ever think about just taking a beer bottle and pitching it out the window, right? Cuz it kind of like in that that crying Indian is is it's etched indelibly into my soul, you know?
2: Yeah. And if you grew up watching those, uh, those commercials, you know, you, that was, that was the way it was, you know, you knew that and you respected that, but I think we've got away from that from whatever reason. So, yeah.
3: So I'm going to go ahead and say, we talked about a little bit earlier, but as you're going into the forest, almost every road, I would say probably every road, as soon as you enter the forest and throughout the forest at each station, you're going to see a big smoky bear, Right. And if you look at that smoky bear, it's gonna tell you what your fire, what like your fire uh liability is. Am I correct?
2: Right, your fire danger.
3: Yeah, your fire danger. And if it's low, like Dwight said, no matter when you burn a fire, try and rake you out a big area around it. But if it's as it gets higher, you watch that and you don't if it gets too high, don't go and burn yourself a fire.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Just use your good common sense. You know, if you're walking them out in the woods, and the brush under your feet is crunching, it's dry. Deer moss is a good indicator for me. If deer moss crunches, it's dry. And so uh, always, always just rake that perimeter around your ring of fire there. You know, and uh, and just watch your weather. You know, the weather is the biggest influence on fire.
3: So if you're you're saying rake a ring, I mean, what do you? How big of a ring would you suggest people rake?
2: You know, if you can do five feet, try to do five feet. You know, that would be ideal. You know, try to get it to mineral full five feet around where you want to have your fire. And, uh, if you can, you know, put rock around, of course, we don't have the pleasure of having rock here, but <laughs> yeah. however, somehow I've seen rock rings on this forest. I mean, mostly center blocks, but yeah. <laughs> 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 manufacturer. There. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're in a campground, always use the fire rings that are provided. <coughs> don't build a fire outside the fire rings that are provided.
1: So I'll say, uh, when it comes to, to putting out a fire and you think that, no, oh, it's no problem, I've got some water bottles in my in my cooler. When you're looking at a fire, your GPMs have to be higher than your BTUs. Yeah. Your gallons per minute <laughs> have to be more than your British thermal units in order to completely put that fire out. So if you're building the campfire, those bottled waters aren't going to be good enough. You need to be filling up five-gallon buckets full and mm-hmm. things of that nature to have that stuff on hand. And the bigger the fire, when I say buckets, plural,
2: right I always keep a little shovel too you know you're often if you're hiking you're not going to be carrying you know water other than your drinking water but uh you can do a lot of work with a shovel you just mix it in with sand and stir it and mix it and stir it and mix it and stir it we call it dry mopping and, and that's a tactic you use out west a lot uh, because the water's not always available out west so you know we've learned to put fires out with just soil uh, just kind of stir it and mix it and stir it and mix it until it's cold
6: for my tip, I'm going to give a little public awareness speech. Those pipeline markers, if you destroy them, you can get caught. If you get caught, it can be up to a $5,000 fine. The pipeline right away through the forest, and, and everybody knows where the right-of-way is in the pipeline. Stay off of it. Don't destroy the marker post. Don't start fires in the middle of it just because it's a good sandy area stay away from it it's made to travel and that's what you need to do you don't need to shoot your guns at the marker post you don't need to start fires and pull the marker posts up we went out there one we were patrolling one time and found a stack of marker posts they were using them for firewood <laughs> um, no, okay.
2: nothing surprised me on the forest no I've, I've seen some crazy stuff don't we'll talk offline
6: if somebody. you get caught yeah five thousand dollars
3: i must say being a gas line you start a fire on the gas line i'm sure the last thing dwight wants to have to do is plow across that gas line absolutely <laughs> yeah, you, know, <laughs> you might get a lot more fire than you say,
2: you'll never know it trained we've been thoroughly trained on the, the hazards of, of fighting fires around the gas line uh, gas they've and been, fire they've been do good not know these folks have been good enough to come to us and offer that training because they know that the risk that we inherit when we're out there doing the fires
5: briar jim i got mine my, mine is for the gator hunters, or the the maybe the first time gator hunter like yourself. Yes, and I had to learn. I learned this the hard way. Don't go out and hunt all night. Don't, don't tell, do it. You go. Don't tell everybody that. It, it <laughs> don't didn't matter. Didn't <laughs> I? Was it? I know. I, I feel know. like I, I heard had to learn that. the hard yeah. way. Well, I feel like there was somebody that told I understand. you that. Before. I had to learn the hard okay. way. Or maybe just a, a couple people that told him that. <laughs> yeah. some, some people have to learn the hard way. Might right. have been a whole
4: podcast on it. it isn't, <laughs>
1: yeah. that, isn't that how you have Anyways. to learn a lot of things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Anyways, just look, you, you start at 5 five p.m. And you hunt till about dark. Unless you're hooked up on one and fighting one, don't. About dark, you just quit.
6: Briar, don't let either one of these two here
5: fool you. Yeah, They've they learned learn the things hard, the hard though. way also. Yeah. <laughs> and we all have. Daylight, the 10... To 10 a.m that's when you gator hunt yeah jim what you got
4: mine's muzzle loader tip um, clean your muzzle loader when you're done hunting
5: keep your powder Jordan. dry
4: well actually you're you're pretty close there on the clean the muzzle loader when you're done um i thought i'd been doing a pretty decent job um hey scrub it out you look down the barrel oh, it looks pretty good and i really hadn't i don't know how i missed this but so much of your buildup is actually right there in the throat, right where your ignition system is. And um I sat it in my muzzle loader and I threw a shot eighteen inches high or something ridiculous like that. And then I and I couldn't get it a pattern consistently and I was thinking about mounting the scope again and that so I but you have to clean it. You can only throw so many rounds on a muzzle loader, am pretty sure you're yeah, it's trying to try not push it through grit. And uh and I cleaned it up pretty good, and I looked down the barrel, and I was like, "Wait, what's all that stuff right near my eye?" And I, man, I couldn't believe it. I was in there with wire, wire brush, and wire brush, and wire brush, and hoppies and wire brush. Man, um, but as soon as I got that junk out of there, even though it was all the way down, at the ignition at the breech of the barrel, yeah, at the ignition source, that was it, man. Once that thing was cleaned up, I was well as far as muzzle loaders go, driving tacks again. So details, man, it all adds up. Have tip. you ever tried Murphy's oil soap in hot water? You say hot no. Soapy I basically water. try to keep. I know I've heard that, but I have trouble. With, I just can't get there, man. Putting water down my gun barrel. So, <laughs> so I'll tell you this: hot soap the,
1: water. The it the works. The soap itself actually neutralizes the the. Uh, it works. Works to neutralize the corrosive agent in, in black powder and pyrodex. Yeah, yeah. I actually just use Don dish soap in super hot water. Yeah. And when you take that soap and you dump it down the barrel, it it's black black mm. black and then you run your wire brush do it again black like you can do that for 30 minutes i did it i did it for easily 30 minutes uh do, kept repeat kept repeating that process with the wire brush and the soap until i stopped seeing a lot of black come out and then i switched over to the the bore cleaner and and patches and a, and a
4: jig well that, i might have to give that a shot because Right now, I could eat out of the inside of my barrel, but uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll be God, there long because I got a squid load in it right now.
3: I used to hate muzzleloader season just because I knew when we got home, Dad was going to make him clean it, make us clean them for like an hour.
4: Oh, it is, man! It's like blam up yeah. oh, there's an hour. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hope you hit them.
3: But you
1: know, I, I don't know, kind of grown to enjoy cleaning my guns, especially the muzzlers and stuff after that. It's just it's
4: That's part of the because you have a daughter. You're just in training. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it's it's truly a process. It's part of the process. And even after I go and shoot my regular firearms, I'm still religiously cleaning. Not so much my hunting rifle. I do a, a good deep clean at the end of the year. I don't deep clean it throughout season. I might run a, a boar snake through it here or there or take it apart and wipe it down after it's rained to keep, you know, water from settling in there anywhere. But you know, that's one of those things you got to think about too. This is another tip. If you're going to take a firearm down all the way, like take a an action and barrel out of a stock, get an inch pound screwdriver and find the, the torque specs for your said specific firearm because if you don't torque it back to factory specs, it won't be zeroed anymore. That stuff is important. You can over-torque it, you can under-torque it, and that's all going to change your accuracy.
4: Sure.
1: The more you know
3: noted but (laughs) until
4: my last last tip is get an armorer in your friend circle you learn all (laughs) kinds of neat things yeah so
1: man we've got some sweet events coming up we got the the small game hunts coming up but the big thing right now is there are only four spots left for the 50 mile swanee
4: trip in may correct jim yeah we've got so we've got try to make this brief most of the nights that we are on the Swanee, we'll be staying in screened-in enclosures um, at, at camps, and those are free. But there is one evening where we'll be stopping at Lafayette Blue Springs State Park. Beautiful facilities, but you're either sleeping in the mud or you get a cabin. So we've we've now got two full cabins, and the last cabin only has four spots in it. Um, we don't know if we're, we don't think we're going to be able to get another one. We're lucky to get the three that we've got. So, hopefully, once those are sold out, uh, we'll still have folks going. But we're, they're going to need hammocks and they're going to need tents or they're going to sleep under the stars. I love sleeping under the stars, but not if it rains.
1: So here's the sweet thing: if you want the cabin, if you want to get on the cabin one of those last four spots, is fifty bucks. If you don't and you don't, you're like, man, fifty miles is a long ways. You can meet us on Friday and do thirty and that, then you're only paying the fee for the outfitter to bring us back to our vehicles at the very end or bring you back to the, your vehicle at the very end. So you'll be able to meet us at a rendezvous point on Friday. We're going to start for the 50-mile trip. We'll start on Wednesday, correct? correct. I think it's
3: 35 actually.
1: actually. I said $35. Did I say 30? $35 I 30 $35 for the outfitter fee, 30 miles on the three-day trip. Uh, and then you'll be sleeping in those little screened-in porches or under the stars for those... Couple nights you're out there, but it's it's a good time.
3: And I'm gonna say, don't doubt that even though whatever time of year it is, if you're sleeping a screened-in porch, be prepared to be cold at night. Because I was not, and I was cold at night. Well, you don't have any body.
6: Yes, I no, say, I, I, no, I, never, got, it, I yes, never got. I never
3: got chilly. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it is not. It is far from hot yeah, at night.
4: Yeah, and something else everybody should know: the fifty dollars that goes to the state park, the thirty-five dollars goes to the outfitter. Folks, we're putting this on as volunteers. We want you to come out and and join us because it's a heck of a lot of fun. Eat your weight in bluegill. I mean, we made every year this event gets a little bigger. Most of the time people go on one, they come back. It's a blast. Uh, You forget about all your cares, and you get to see part of Florida. You You get all kinds. You get some modern Florida. You get some antebellum Florida. and Then you get some Florida that probably hasn't changed the way it looked in hundreds of years. So.
3: It's a great, it, you swim have in, almost zero cell phone signal the entire time.
1: Swim yeah. in the Suwannee River and just paddle and float and fish and enjoy the fellowship of other great outdoors men and women. And it's just, it it's be a good, good thing for your sanity, if nothing else. Your soul, yeah, yeah. So we got that coming up and uh, small game hunts, small game hunts. We've got a lot of stuff. Coming up on the calendar into the 2022 year. We're going to keep that under the table right now. We'll tell you about that later. But man, if you've made it this far, we would truly appreciate it if you guys would scroll down and write us a review. You click that far right hand star is most preferred if you think we deserve it to give us five stars. But don't just click the stars. Underneath the stars, you'll see the little tab that says write a review on apple Podcasts, you can click on that physically write a review leave us at five stars and that helps us get higher into that analytic and our, and our podcast grows a lot faster because when you search outdoors podcast or hunting podcasts or fishing podcasts under pressure outdoors now pops up towards the top of that search and that's what we're trying to do just trying to reach more people and and, and spread the the good word of conservation So until next week, Dwight, I really appreciate you joining us this week. We had a great time. Thank you. Absolutely.
3: It's been awesome, Dwight. Yeah. We'll We'll catch you guys later.